When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Danielle Lindemann about True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, this is a, a great book. It's it's both, you know, kind of uh, really interesting, is full of these kind of fascinating um, case studies from reality television, but it's almost, um, I, I think, a... a, a like a guidebook about why sociology matters and how we can kind of use both sociological techniques and sociological concepts to understand um, contemporary culture. And and, and I think in in that sense, it's a really important bit of sociology as well as, you know, being a book about reality television. And and I guess the place to start with it is, so where does it fit in with your your broader agenda and and what was the kind of inspiration uh, to write about uh, reality TV. You, at the start, you do kind of say, why should we care about reality TV? Yeah. Um, so kind of more generally, I'm a sociologist and I look at gender, sexuality, culture, and what we call deviance, which sounds like a really loaded term if you're not a sociologist. But it, what it just means is any behavior that falls outside of a norm. Um, and so in the past, I've looked at, I wrote, wrote a book about dominatrixes. I wrote a book about couples who live apart for their jobs. Um, so it kind of fits into that overarching kind of deviance umbrella. Um, and sort of I take as my point of departure in all of my work, this idea that by looking at people who behave in unexpected or non-normative ways, paradoxically, we can better understand social life kind of at the center or more broadly. So by, you know, reality TV might seem like wacky, like I have nothing in common with those, you know, wacky people doing those crazy things over there. Actually, by looking at reality TV, we can come to a better understanding of ourselves. So that's kind of where it fits in my overall research trajectory. I mean, the, the flip side of, of kind of asking why, you know, would, would a sociologist kind of care about reality TV is probably what actually is it? Because um, I suppose people have sort of views or, or maybe quite, you know, kind of loaded views about what uh, reality television is. And, and one of the things that, that 
is really good in the book is it's got a really kind of eclectic range of, of different examples from what I might call um, the kind of, you know, sort of lowbrow, I guess. Um, you know, that's quite a culturally loaded uh, term, isn't it? Um, reality TV, but through to things that I guess are more kind of, you know, almost sort of documentary style, um, almost, you know, indeed kind of sociological um, television shows. So, so what is it? What is this uh, genre? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. You know, I talk to a lot of people who swear that they don't watch reality TV because they only watch kind of fill in the blank, right? They only watch competition shows or they only watch whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I don't really make a strong statement about, you know, this is reality TV versus this isn't. I think, you know, it's a social construct. We've like created this idea of reality TV. And so like any social construct, the boundaries of it are going to be kind of hazy. So in terms of what qualifies as reality TV and what doesn't. So I define it kind of broadly as, you know, any television that primarily seeks to entertain rather than inform. So I don't talk about like news programs um, in the book, um, but also that feature ostensibly real people being themselves. And of course, you know. To, to what extent is it real is another question, right? But ostensibly feature real people being themselves versus, uh, you know, overtly scripted shows. So it was really those sort of two points, this idea that it's primarily intended to entertain and that it features real people. And I mean, one element of that is is in the title of, I guess, the kind of uh, almost sort of canonical reality TV show, which, which was MTV's The Real World. And, and one of the things that, um, and I've mentioned, you know, the kind of sociological lens in the book. But one of the things that um, the book does is sort of say, here's how sociology can be kind of useful to, to, to understand both reality TV, but also, you know, what reality TV means and, and why it's important. And, and I guess it'd be quite handy almost to kind of extend that sense of what is reality TV by talking about the real world, like what made it different from other television shows? Why was it kind of important? Why was it a hit, actually? You know, it, it, it's kind of one of those shows that I guess people have, have heard of and is in kind of popular consciousness in a way that uh, maybe some of the other, you know, shorter-lived reality TV shows um, don't really kind of get that crossover. Yeah, I mean, so again, because it's a social construct, right, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint exactly where or when reality TV began. A lot of people would say that it began with that first season of The Real World in New York City in the 19, early 1990s. Um, some people would say it extends back further than that. You could look at, you know, the the dating games, dating shows of the 1960s or, you know, a PBS documentary in American Family in the early 1970s. You know, I mean, again, I don't really weigh in about whether any of these interpretations are right or wrong. But the reason that I think that a lot of people pinpoint the real world is because it really pioneered a lot of the conventions of reality TV that we see today and kind of take as a given, right? So the kind of serialized structure, the fact that there's kind of these narrative arcs that go over the course of a season, this convention of the kind of testimonial or talking head where the person is being interviewed and then it cuts to the action and they're talking about the action that they see, that we see on the screen. Kind of all of those conventions were kind of pioneered with that first season of the real world, which again is why it was seen as kind of so revolutionary at the time and why a lot of people kind of pinpoint the origins of reality TV there. I guess one of the things you, you've said there is, is that um, the basics of, of reality TV and, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, people will say to you like, oh, I don't really watch reality TV because I, I guess they have associations with um, 
the more uh, kind of contemporary, um, almost kind of game show style things like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Um, and I was interested in, in those shows for, for two reasons. One was, I guess, the comparison with the real world and, and how these shows are, you know, kind of still within that reality TV genre, um, but also really, really, you know, kind of distinctive and different. But also because by the time in the book you're talking about The Bachelor and, and The Bachelorette, you're really bringing out actually issues around inequality in um, gender relationships. You're talking about um, the expectations that are in um, these sorts of shows about particularly kind of heterosexual white middle-class coupledom and dating and stuff like that, which is really in contrast with what the real world was about. And, and I guess the kind of um, social life of America that the MTV show was, was trying to reflect. Yeah, you know, so I, I argue in the book that not only can sociology, you know, as you mentioned, sort of help us to better understand reality TV, but the other way around, right? Like reality TV can better help us understand the society in which we live. It really serves as a very useful sociological primer for a variety of reasons. And that's especially true of a show like The Real World, where you have it kind of artificially patchworks together people who were socialized in very different environments. And so when that happens, you really begin to see really the impact of our socialization and our social context, our social context in shaping who we are. And then in that first season, we had people really getting into like deep conversations about things like gender, race and religion, you know, like sitting around a table, hashing it out, their experiences with race. Um, I think for a lot of people, they hadn't really seen conversations like that on TV before. So this kind of inherent structure of reality TV, where you're kind of throwing together these kind of disparate individuals, actually really is helpful for illuminating, again, kind of the pull of society and shaping who we become. Now, if you flash forward to a show like, you know, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, well, it's certainly not now people sitting around a table having deep conversations about, you know, religion or politics or, or race, right? In fact, those con- those those ideas are kind of studiously avoided on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. But as I say, right, like, it might be harder to get the sociological meat off the bone there, but those shows can still teach us about gender, race, and social class, especially a show like The Bachelor, where really what you have is, as you mentioned, right, like, mainly heterosexual, white, middle class, conventionally attractive people linking up with other people who fit those same categories. And it really shows us kind of how we emphasize social sameness in who we link up with in our courtship processes, right? The fact that there was almost no diversity on that show for a long time, you know, it tells us something, right, about the fact that, you know, we still privilege whiteness, that we still kind of value whiteness. Um, and so I think a show like, and a lot of reality shows are like that, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette are just two examples where it's not people having these deep conversations about these sociological topics, but it can still teach us about those things. I mean, it's interesting the way you've mentioned that kind of sociological interest in, in deviance. It's interesting the way that quite a lot of reality television really doesn't have much deviance in it, actually, and, and is really, I suppose, about sociologically showing us what the norms are, you know, almost kind of saying you should be watching these things and thinking about 
who isn't present because, you know, the kind of act of exclusion is really crucial. And later on in the book, um, you, you start to, and I, and I guess this is an extension of some of the themes around uh, coupledom, um, middle-classness, uh, gender relationships. You, you think about motherhood um, and these ideas about kind of what a good and bad mother is. And, and obviously, like, one of the kind of central reality TV shows is keeping up with the Kardashians. It would be, like, weird for us not to talk about that, um, given how, how important it is. But you're not just kind of saying, you know, as, as maybe you'd expect, you know, like class relationships or money in keeping up with the Kardashians. You, you're interested in motherhood as well. And I'm keen to hear a bit more about that, particularly in that context of kind of what... I suppose that the norms and you know the ideas of, of deviance that are kept off the screen as much as what's put onto it. Yeah, you know it's interesting because you know when we began this conversation, I talked about how you know I'm a scholar of deviance and reality TV fits into that, right? But ultimately, in the book, I really argue that reality TV, for as deviant as it seems, it paradoxically shows us how conservative we are in a lot of ways, how we kind of hold fast to ideas about things like motherhood, gender, race, sexuality. Um, and it's really difficult to kind of move the needle. And we have a lot of like retrograde assumptions um, about those things. Um, and so a show like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, I think it absolutely does teach us about social class. It absolutely does teach us about gender, um, which I, you know, I do write about a little bit in the book. But um, I think when, we, when it comes to motherhood, we really hold fast to this idea of what Sharon Hayes calls intensive mothering, this idea that mothers should be kind of solely responsible for their kids. They should be responsible for their emotional well-being, their physical well-being, their academic well-being, and that should kind of all fall on mothers. And that's a very kind of historically and culturally specific way to look at mother, and class-specific and racially specific way to look at motherhood. Um, but it's interesting to think about how we interpret someone like Kris Jenner, who often ends up on the kind of worst mother lists, uh, listicles, right, online, and why she does. And I think one of the reasons for that is because you know, we kind of want mothers to be intensive, but not too intensive to the point where they're helicoptering. And she's someone who comes across as kind of straddling those two extremes where she's, she seems really kind of absent from her children li- children's lives in some ways, but at the same time, too intensively involved in their lives in other ways. And so she's not able to kind of hit that sweet spot of intensive mothering. So yeah, so a show like Keeping Up with the Kardashians shows us that like, as wacky and deviant as we think the Kardashians are, um, again, they're just kind of showing us how we kind of keep returning to these like conservative ideas about what makes a good mother, what makes a good woman, what makes a good person. What are those same, as you put it, sort of conservative ideas when we're thinking about um, children? So um, you, you talk a lot about both the sort of junior versions of um reality shows so there's a um junior um master chef um you know where gordon ramsay is like better behaved <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> on, on the adult one well, the bar is low um, but yeah <laughs> you know and, and sort of like you know less kind of angry and, and sweary but but there's also um you know things like uh, is it uh tollers and tiaras you know which is sort of beauty pageant show um there's you know various ones that are like kind of from the mother's perspective but actually not not kind of either um and then there are shows where almost the kind of cliched view of um 
you know, deviant mothers who have had quote unquote too many children, um, where we see, you know, kind of, um, crossovers between class, race, gender, sexuality, um, to make, you know, make kind of judgments about the people on screen. And, and I'm interested to continue that theme of, of sort of how are norms reinforced around childhood, but how at the same time is kind of deviance presented as deviance almost in the bad way in American reality TV. Yeah, I mean, there's so much happening there around childhood, right? Um, and I think, you know, one of the things reality TV does, it shows us a, kind of our, our cultural contradictions in the way that we think about childhood. So, for instance, we think about childhood as being this safe space, like, separate from sexuality. We don't, we don't sexualize children, except that we do all the time. On a show like Toddlers and Tears, the children are being sexualized, right? At the same time, on a show like 16 and Pregnant, you hear these girls talking about how they had never been talked to. They've ne- never gotten any kind of sex ed, right? So it's this sort of paradoxical relationship where we see childhood, the kind of boundaries of childhood. It's this space like apart from adult sexuality. But at the same time, we're you're kind of including children. We're, we're talking about children in, in kind of sexual terms as though they're sexual beings, Um which is really interesting. Um, And I think also, you know, it just shows us again, the way that we think about childhood in a particular way that is very culturally and historically specific. This idea that childhood is this like separate space from adulthood, that children need to be kind of protected. They're not just little adults, they're separate creatures who need to be protected. They don't have the skills that adults have. They're kind of in that separate space, right? That's why Gordon Ramsay is not screaming at the children, right, on his show, but he's screaming at the adults. But again, that's a very historically and culturally specific way to look at childhood, even though we tend to think about it as just like biologically obvious but at the same time it's interesting because these ty- these types of shows these children are highly skilled right like you have kids coming on like chop junior and are making you know these amazing concoctions or you know they're doing pirouettes or they're you know they're doing all of these amazing things that maybe you wouldn't think that children would be able to do so at the same time they're sort of disrupting that even though they're sort of reinforcing our idea that okay there needs to be a separate show called chopped junior because that's a separate sphere when you see actually the children on these shows and the sort of heights to which they can, you know, ascend, it's really interesting and kind of disrupts our assumptions about what childhood is. Who is actually watching? Because um, there's a slight kind of shift in the, in the second half of the book where um, you, you move kind of slightly away from um, the shows themselves. And, and I think, you know, think more broadly, both about kind of general um, sociological categories, but also you start to bring in questions about, well, who is actually the audience? And one of the things where I started, you know, I refer to these kind of like, you know, highbrow, lowbrow versions of reality TV, but actually who is watching tells us something about the way that um, things like class distinctions are still, you know, really inseparable from taste distinctions um, in contemporary society. And it'd be good to, to hear both about, I guess, kind of um, the audience uh, across a variety of different shows um, before we move on to think about, um, I guess, some of the problems um, with with the audience and, and kind of who almost kind of isn't watching as well as who is. Yeah, I mean, so almost a lot of people are watching on kind of all dimensions of the, of the class system. So I think, you know, a majority, studies show a majority of people are watching reality TV, Um Based on class, they might be watching different 
reality TV programs. Um, but I do think it's interesting, you know, to go back to what I said earlier about how people will say, I don't watch reality TV because I only watch X, right? They create these. And the reason, they're, because they're trying to like socially distance themselves from this idea of reality TV, which is like still this really like stigmatized genre, even though a majority of people are watching it, right? Even though it's been on for so long, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere anytime soon, even though people connect with each other around these shows, it still remains highly stigmatized. So, you know, people, again, are trying to do this symbolic distancing by saying, well, but I'm not one of those people who watches those shows over there um, by saying I don't watch reality TV, except X, right? Except this one thing that is higher in terms of legitimacy than the other things. But I think there's absolutely a, a sort of a class dimension to that um, as well. You know, there's also studies that show that sort of middle class people um, can watch reality TV, especially featuring like working class or lower class people to kind of symbolically distance themselves to maybe feel a little bit superior about themselves. At least I'm not like, you know, honey boo boo over there. Um, so there is that sort of element of kind of like class superiority, like what sociologist Jennifer Lennon would call slumming kind of happening in the viewing of these shows where middle-class people are watching these shows to kind of symbolically distance themselves from the working class or lower class people who populate their screens. I mean, it's kind of fascinating the, um, how do I describe it, the kind of use of reality TV that comes up at the start of that second half of the book. And it it connects directly to, to questions about representation and again actually you know given you've just said the um sort of variety of um shows that are under the reality tv banner it's kind of a bit mean to kind of say well you know well how is race represented what about gender what about sexuality but how is race represented in terms of i guess kind of what are the racial politics uh, of contemporary reality tv I, I was struck actually by repeatedly through both sections, both halves of the book, you're kind of highlighting how, um, you know, it, it, it's notable that there are very narrow uh, lanes that uh, people of colour are kind of fitted into um, in reality TV. There are controversies around the whiteness of uh, some of the, the bigger and more uh, famous shows. And the shows will often, you know, respond with like, well, we had like this one contestant or we did, you know, a specific um, kind of weak or, or, or something like this, but actually, you know, the kind of racial inequalities are, are fairly set and, and are fairly kind of continuous. Yeah, so it is, it's really nuanced, right? So, you know, racially, historically on reality TV, people of color um, have been more often represented on rea- reality TV than they have within other forms of media. Um so representation and reality TV kind of writ large, and yes, there are specific programs with almost zero representation, right? But just taking it as a whole, representation is relatively high compared to other forms of media. Um, now, in terms of what's being represented on the show, as I, as I discuss in the book, there are a lot of sort of negative stereotypes about marginalized groups, including racial minorities, that persist on reality shows that are kind of historical stereotypes that go, you know, you can trace them down to like minstrelsy and see how over the years they've persisted and kind of like pool in the well of reality TV. Um, You know, at the same time, you know, some scholars, you know, including scholars of color have argued that people on these reality shows kind of 
lean into these stereotypes, like someone like Cardi B and kind of laugh all the way to the bank. Um, so there maybe is a, an element of resistance um, in that. Um, you know, and I think there's also a difference, as you mentioned, right, the, the bat, these kind of like, kind of high profile network TV shows like The Bachelor, or, you know, Survivor tend to have less representation. But then kind of like in the back channels of cable, there are all of these shows featuring like people of color, and maybe, you know, there's more room um on those kind of like less high profile networks, what what um, media scholar Raquel Gates calls the televisual gutter. There's kind of more room in the televisual gutter to kind of like be more diverse and show different dimensions um, of, you know, people of color than there is maybe on a, on a network like CBS or, or NBC. So I think, again, like you said, right, it's really hard to make kind of one universal statement about like what's happening with race on reality TV, because it is really multifaceted and nuanced. I mean, what, one area where there probably is, um, I guess, more of this kind of universal statements and, and where um, you see less of, I, I guess, the kind of sense of, of resistance or, or indeed, you know, contestants playing with uh, the genre and, and, and with um, the genre conventions is around the representation of sexuality. And, and I found it particularly fascinating towards the end of the book where you, you make this argument, which I think is really compelling, that although there is a lot um, of, I guess, kind of gay-friendly uh, space in reality TV, it's a very narrow version of queer sexuality. Uh, it's, you know, white gay men, essentially. Um and then uh, for the lesbian community, there are, you know, sort of representations of lesbians, um, but, you know, they're quite sexualized. There's definitely a sort of, uh, as you describe, a dominant male gaze. But, you know, the lesbian community that don't fit a male gaze and then bisexual men, and, and there's lots of writing around um, bisexual men being seen as, you know, kind of a, a threat um, in various um, different ways, a much kind of rarer. And I, I so I can't remember the exact show, but what one of the things you do later in the book is talk about how a bisexual guy cropping up is, is you know, treated with real sort of like concern on, on some reality shows. And is a bit like, whoa, this is, you know, this is a problem for us. And, and I'm keen to not, not just hear more about that, but I guess to understand sort of how you develop that argument. And, and I guess kind of um, is, is this a, almost the kind of like, a rule or a norm for reality TV that, you know, it can have um, queer diversity, but it's, you know, only of a particular um, kind of male gaze kind. Yeah, I think for me, like one of the most interesting things about reality TV is not only who's on it, but who's not on it, right? You know, I, I talk about in the book, you know, Asian men, you don't often see on reality TV and what that can tell us, right? Bisexual men, similarly, you don't often see on reality TV or other forms of media, right? There is this kind of erasure of bisexual men, um, you know, across the board, that's not just a reality TV problem, but what can that teach us kind of, you know, about ourselves? Um, and I think, you know, but bisexual women are, are there, you know, and it's interesting, again, because I think we maybe tend to think about reality TV, again, it historically has been more diverse in other forms of media, you know, in terms of queer representation, in terms of representation of people of color. Um, but yes, that diversity in some ways is limited, right? When it's 
mainly white gay men who are representing the queer community on reality TV. So I think, you know, one of the things I say in the book is, so why don't we see more, say, lesbians on reality TV, even on networks like, you know, like Logo, which is, you know, is geared toward the queer community. I think, you know, one of the things is that reality TV traffics in stereotypes. So you have to think about what are the stereotypes about people in those groups? And do they align with the types of people that typically populate reality TV? So if there are stereotypes of lesbians as being, you know, like earth mother hippies or just like all business and serious, right? Those don't necessarily seem like stereotypes that align with these caricatures that populate reality TV. And so similarly, like when I talk about Asian men, right? Why are there like in The Bachelor, there's no, you know, or The Bachelorette, there's almost no Asian men ever. Um, What are the stereotypes that we have about Asian men? You know, about being these quote unquote technical robots, as I quote that I use in the book, right? Does that align with these like fantastical characters that we want to see on reality TV? Maybe not. And so you see that kind of exclusion there. But yeah, those like moments of erasure where it's, you think it's this incredibly diverse genre, but there are these like entire categories of people who are nearly erased, which to me, I find fascinating. I mean, you, you mentioned, and, and, and I totally agree, you know, that the book gives this, um, you know, sort of really, really nuanced treatment um, of reality TV. TV throughout it, apart from maybe the last chapter uh, where you deal with, I guess, the kind of the ultimate reality TV star, um, the now former president, uh, Donald Trump. Um, And in in some ways, um, I'm intrigued by by kind of how you wrote about Trump, because um, in in one way, you know, Trump could have dominated the book. You you know, it it could have been um, really, I guess, almost a kind of shadow throughout the book uh, about the role of reality TV in, in kind of shaping American politics, not through, you know, the sociological ideas or whatever, but like literally a reality TV star becoming president. And, and I wonder sort of, yeah, how you manage to kind of avoid putting Trump in all the way through, but also, you know, why he matters for any um, analysis of, of reality television. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. From the beginning, I said I didn't want to write a book about Donald Trump. I think you could write a book about Donald Trump and the rise of reality TV, but that would be a very different book. Right. I, I think I literally said when we were shopping the proposal for this book, this is not there's literally a line that said this is not a book about Donald Trump. Just to clarify, it is not a book about Donald Trump. But I clearly he needs to be included in this book. If we are talking about reality TV and the cultural impact of reality TV, the fact that we had a a president who, you know, has this background in reality TV. And not only that, that he kind of happened to have this background in reality TV, but I think arguably kind of uses the tropes and the trappings of reality TV in really kind of effective ways. Even in his presidency, you know, a lot of people called it a reality TV presidency. So he used these tropes like the big reveal or like, you know, playing with people's idea of what's real and what's not real. You know, that, that's just fake news. Or, you know, you see this photograph with a number of people in the inauguration crowd, but that's not true. That's not a real photograph. So I think decades of watching reality TV have kind of primed us to think that way about reality, to have kind of more skepticism about the images that we're seeing on our screens. And Trump was really able um, to use that skepticism very effectively. So yeah, any conversation about reality TV is not going to be complete um, without a conversation, you know, about Donald Trump. But again, I didn't want him to 
And he comes up periodically throughout the book, but I didn't really want him to dominate the book because it's not just about him. It's kind of about reality TV more broadly as a text and what it can teach us about ourselves as a culture. Part of what you've said there, kind of, you know, you don't want to write a book about Trump, but obviously you really could. Um, and actually there, there are, you know, several sort of um, books that might come from this book. You know, I, I think, you know, really straightforwardly, um, there's, you know, a book about representations of motherhood that could be, you know, sort of developed and, and spun out. I mean, there's, there's actually lots of stuff we, we haven't even um, kind of got into. Uh, one thing you do is, is link quite kind of classical sociological theory to, to bits of, of reality television. And there's, there's really interesting discussions about um, how kind of masculinity is, is represented and, and expertise. And is there a sort of a series of reality TV books coming or is this the sort of, you know, um, I guess the kind of full stop for your research agenda in this area? And are you going to move on to something um, kind of completely different? question i don't know um i think now i'm thinking hmm, should i write a book about trump and reality tv i don't know i mean i think yeah i think that there are some like sort of potential other avenues that you know it's hard to write one book and encompass everything right because it is this sprawling genre so yeah i don't really know what the future holds in terms of whether I will write more about this topic, perhaps. Um, right now, I'm kind of focusing on another pro- project, which actually is about motherhood. It's about you know people's senses of mom guilt. Um, and so I've, I've been focusing on that. But it, of course, it's also related to reality TV and what I write about motherhood and reality TV. Um, so yeah, I have an unsatisfying answer, which is, I don't know. I, I could maybe see another book on this topic, but I could see it going either way. Well, I look forward to the book on motherhood anyway. Oh, great. 